0: I don't have good news to report. Um, there is not a match between Mr. Shiflet's DNA and any of the DNA that was found, or at least uh, analyzed in the 2009 report. I
1: just freaking don't know because I wasn't there. I'll always believe Elizabeth was there, and I'll always believe that she wasn't alone.
2: The two most likely alternate suspects in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem were the drifters, William Shiflet and Robert Albright. But after obtaining Shiflet's DNA and comparing it to the unidentified blood at the crime scene, we were able to rule him out. And Albright agreed to have his DNA tested as well. While we're still waiting for those results, it seems increasingly unlikely that the two men were involved. When we shared the results of Shiflet's DNA test with Jens Soaring, he was disappointed. It's unfortunately the results not, not what I'd hoped for, It would have been really nice if that had been Shiflet. That would have been really nice. Jens spent 35 years in prison for the Haysum murders before being paroled in November of 2019. He originally confessed to the crimes, but later recanted, saying he was covering for his girlfriend, Elizabeth Haysum. His claims were bolstered by the DNA testing done in 2009. And he says Elizabeth is the only one who knows the truth about who killed her parents. I wish they would have given me a pardon and kept Elizabeth and put pressure on her to tell, you know, if if they had told her, you know, "We'll, we'll, we'll let you go to Canada. We'll let your boyfriend go. We'll let you go back to Canada if you give up the names. Right. I wish they'd done that. Elizabeth pleaded guilty to being an accessory to murder and also served more than three decades in prison. While Jens has published multiple books on the case, and his claims of innocence have been the subject of news stories and movies, Elizabeth has kept largely silent. But in her few public statements, she's remained steadfast that Jens murdered her parents, and that she should have stopped him. We'd reached out to her before her release from prison last year, and she'd declined our request for an interview. Since she'd been deported to Canada, we didn't have contact information, but we wanted to share the results of our investigation, especially the DNA comparison that ruled out Shiflet. We found a way to do that, when we were put in contact with a woman who has been Elizabeth's close confidant for decades. She's a precious person. We had the best time in Toronto. Phyllis Workman is Elizabeth Haysom's cousin. She's a retired widow and also an avid golfer and powerlifter, who recently crushed her own goal of deadlifting one hundred and sixty pounds on her eightieth birthday, and she just spent a girls' weekend in Canada with Elizabeth. Over the past thirty years, Phyllis has become a close friend to Elizabeth and a staunch supporter. We met with her at her vacation home in the Blue Ridge Mountains to hear more about Elizabeth's life and how she's doing now. Phyllis says she first met a teenaged Elizabeth at a dinner party for the Hasems shortly after the family moved to Lynchburg in the early 80s.
1: When we got there, Elizabeth was in the front hall with some friends and they were getting ready to go out someplace i can tell you right now, she was the snittiest, she was rude, she was snitty, she, you know, aloof. That was my first encounter with Elizabeth.
2: She says the Hasem family's worldly experiences set them apart in early 1980s Lynchburg. Derek and Nancy met in South Africa. They both had children from previous marriages and had a sixth child together, Elizabeth. Due to political unrest, the Hasems moved to Europe before settling in Canada, where Derek was CEO of Nova Scotia's largest steel firm. When he retired, the family moved to Lynchburg, where Nancy Hasem had deep family roots. I can remember my mother talking about
1: them a lot. In my mother's eyes, they were sort of jet-setty. And when they moved to Lynchburg, you could tell they had class. They were friendly, though, very friendly. And um, very pleasant, very nice. I only saw them occasionally maybe when they were having lunch in a restaurant. And I would be there and see them and walk over. And one time Mother was with me, and of course, you know, she had to go speak to them. So, but as far as I know, you know, they were just a normal couple, a little maybe aloof, socially aloof.
2: The Hasems had only lived in Lynchburg a few years, when they were brutally stabbed and nearly decapitated in their own home. It was a crime with no obvious motive or suspects, and the community was terrified. And of course, you know, there was talk, maybe there was a loose,
1: cultish kind of murderer on in the neighborhood. Uh,
2: everybody was scared to death. People were really frightened. Phyllis attended the funeral with the family, and kept up on the investigation in the news. A year later, when she heard Elizabeth had been arrested in Europe and extradited back to Virginia as a main suspect in the crime, Phyllis says she considered reaching out to Elizabeth, but was hesitant to insert herself in such a high-profile case. But she says God sent her a sign as she drove home one day and was praying on the decision.
1: Had country music on the radio, and don't you know that I no sooner said that. Then a song came on the radio about somebody who was in jail and nobody came to see him. And I thought, Lord, you have a sense of humor. So instead of going home, I drove directly to Bedford County
2: and went to the jail. Phyllis remembers Elizabeth was being held in a Bedford County jail cell, about 8 by 8, and she could only see her face through a small opening. She She was very receptive. She was very pleasant.
1: Um, she was scared, you could tell that, um, and I just kept going back to see her. She began to trust me, and I kept
2: visiting her, and we became very good friends. In 1987, Elizabeth pled guilty to being an accessory before the fact in the murders of her parents.
0: I sentence you to 45 years in prison on each charge.
2: The 23-year-old, whose life of privilege and academic success appeared to hold so much promise, was now facing 90 years in prison. In a letter titled Reflections, published online after release, Elizabeth describes those early days. For a long time after my sentencing, I was profoundly depressed, she wrote. As the years passed, I focused on trying to come to terms with my crime, to change and become someone who might stand for something better. The former UVA Eccles Scholar continued her education in prison. She enrolled in a computer-aided design course and became certified by the American Drafting Design Association and taught the CAD program to fellow inmates. She learned to train rescue dogs and in 2007 was certified as a Braille transcriber. Phyllis says along the way, Elizabeth developed close relationships with her fellow inmates. You know, one
1: time that the prison put her into a a section of prison where young girls were going to be released and they put her into that area of the prison with those young women to mentor them.
2: Several of the women she mentored wrote letters on her behalf to the parole board in 2017. A former inmate named Teresa describes Elizabeth as a coworker, friend, roommate, and sister. Her brutal honesty with their own flaws and failures gives others the courage and desire to do the same, Teresa wrote. I saw on a daily basis how many people, women and staff, she encouraged and inspired to change. Another woman also recalls Elizabeth's kindness and support in a letter. When I first met Elizabeth, I was a scared 21-year-old, just entering the corrections system, the woman wrote. She hadn't been there very long herself. What I remember most about that first encounter with her is how genuinely concerned she was about me and how at ease she managed to put me under the worst circumstances. That conversation was the foundation of our nearly 30-year-long friendship. Phyllis, whose own relationship with Elizabeth has spanned three decades, says they now also share a bond through their faith.
1: Well, I have to tell you, um, it Elizabeth... I think she told me one time that after 17 years in prison, that she finally gave her life to the Lord. She's a beautiful young Christian woman. She's been born again. She has a new life. She's a new person. She's always been
2: remorseful for her sin, her crime. In her letter, Elizabeth writes, ours was a simple crime. I provided the alibi when he visited my parents. I was the catalyst for his actions and thus helped to destroy precious lives. My actions were revolting, and when I testified, I was not yet able to face the full extent of my reprehensible words and deeds. My intention was to be truthful, but I had not yet completely mastered the habit. Worse, telling those stupid lies about buying and taking drugs then gave Jens further material with which to fabricate his alternative history— and he has fully exploited my moments of failure. The motive for the murders has always been hazy, and it hasn't helped that Elizabeth changed her testimony between her sentencing and Yen's trial. Something Yen's legal team has repeatedly pointed out.
3: At trial, she said it was because they didn't want she and Suring to date, uh, which is a you know pretty uh, pretty tough motive to overcome a fear are Yen Soering, uh, but the real reason, she said to the reporter, was because her mother had sexually abused her. And that's the reason that she wanted her parents dead, had nothing to do with Yen Soering. So she's vulnerable for that. An
2: early psychiatric assessment has also contributed to the public perception of Elizabeth as a manipulative liar.
3: Her psychiatrist appeared on the Larry King show and actually told the national audience that Elizabeth Hayson suffered from borderline personality disorder in a severe form. And when one looks that up in the manual, uh, they find that people with that condition uh, are very, very troubled and lying and manipulating is not uncommon.
2: But how accurate is that narrative? A forensic psychologist who assessed Elizabeth in recent years has a very different take on her mental health and a different explanation for her behavior at the time of the murders.
0: So I was contacted in 2014 by uh, Phyllis Workman to prepare a psychological evaluation and risk assessment of Ms. Hason for her then upcoming parole hearing that year.
2: We spoke with Jeff Fraser months ago about the case, but he couldn't discuss his evaluation of Elizabeth without her permission. After we spoke with Phyllis, Elizabeth gave her consent. He remembers his four hour visit with Elizabeth in 2014 when she was still in prison in Virginia.
0: So they bring her into the room. I'd never met her. Uh, she comes in. She's you know, looks like a middle aged woman, attractive, uh, you know, slim build, uh, very pleasant. You know, I had, didn't know what to expect. She was very cooperative because she knew this was something that, you know, might help her.
2: As part of the evaluation, Frazier administered two psychological tests and recommended she be released.
0: The results of the current evaluation and a review of her history prior to and since her offenses indicate that she is at low risk. To reoffend criminally, should she be granted parole? She shows no current evidence of criminogenic needs or tendencies. Criminogenic needs are attributes of offenders that are directly linked to criminal behavior. Her involvement in a heinous crime when she was a young woman appears to have been an isolated incident.
2: Fraser says what appeared to be Elizabeth's life of privilege with elite schooling, ski trips, and worldly adventures. Was a facade concealing a much darker reality, a childhood of trauma and neglect for the Haysom's youngest child.
0: She indicated that in 1973, she was living in Nova Scotia with her parents while her father managed a factory. Due to labor unrest in the factory, Ms. Haysom, who was nine years old at the time, was attacked and badly beaten by a group of boys who were assumed to be the children of members of the labor union with which which her father was in conflict. She was badly injured and her assailants were never apprehended. She suffered a broken jaw and broken teeth, requiring dental surgery. She indicated that following the assaults, her mother began to treat her as, quote, damaged goods, end quote.
2: Elizabeth was sent to boarding school in Europe, where she endured more violent trauma, a rape
0: by three boys. So she's got some significant trauma. You know, she's, she's been raped, she's been beaten up, and then her mother is violating her sexual boundaries.
2: The question of sexual abuse by her mother has been raised since the earliest days of the investigation after detectives found nude photos of a teenaged Elizabeth taken by her mother. Carl Wells, the Bedford County Sheriff at the time of the murders, said Elizabeth was questioned about it by secretaries in his office, since there were no female deputies at that time.
3: It was a rumor, and we never could come up with anything. She wouldn't admit that there was. Elizabeth wouldn't. I had two of the girls at the office sit down with her.
2: When she testified at Yen's trial in 1990... Prosecutor Jim Updike asked Elizabeth if she had been sexually abused by her mother, and she denied it on the stand, in front of family and friends and television cameras. But in 2016, Elizabeth publicly acknowledged the sexual abuse for the first time in an interview with Richmond Times-Dispatch reporter Frank Green, and she spoke about it with Fraser for his assessment in 2014.
0: She indicated that her mother began bathing her at age nine and would scrub her aggressively, with a stiff brush as if to wash away her defects. According to Ms. Hasem, it was during this time that her mother began to violate her sexual boundaries in ways that were very traumatic to her. She characterized her mother's behavior as sexual abuse and indicated that it continued into her late teens.
2: Fraser says the trauma Elizabeth suffered as a younger child, coupled with her parental neglect and rejection, explained the disturbing behavior she later exhibited and her hatred for her parents.
0: Yeah, she really did hate them. I mean, she, especially during that time, I mean, you know, she felt that her mother had been abusive and had treated her badly and made her feel defective. Her father hadn't protected her and that he was basically a drunk. I just think this was all setting her up for the drug abuse and for her acting out uh, as an adolescent young adult.
2: Frasier says he doesn't agree with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder shortly after her arrest and says there's no indication of current mental illness.
0: I think it was probably wrong and I think it was situational in that she was in a state of incredible crisis. She had been drug addled, on the run, arrested, charged with murder. I mean, most of us would look pretty... Flaky in that situation, and I think she probably looked highly emotionally labile, which is a common symptom of, of, of borderline personality disorder. Is these highly labile affect emotions that just swing from one extreme to the other, and I'm guessing that they diagnosed her on that basis.
2: He says the key to her transformation was the intensive therapy she received behind bars.
0: Getting some structure and getting some therapy. Uh, really pulled her together. I mean, over time, you know, not overnight.
2: And Frasier says that therapy also helped her understand the toxic relationship with Jens that ended in murder. Next on Small Town, Big Crime.
0: He was pretty smitten with her. I think she's a lot smarter than him. And I think uh, she could kind of, you know, just get him to do whatever she wanted.
1: She said one thing that attracted her was his evil side.
2: Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime.
3: Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.